We continue our series of sermons this morning from Ezra, and we pick up in the uh, sixth chapter at verse 13. Two decades have passed since the foundation was first laid for the rebuilding of the temple back in chapter 3 of Ezra. For 20 years, opposition from the outside and spiritual warfare within, in their own hearts, that is, has hindered and threatened uh, this work. But now, at long last, the temple is standing. And that's where we pick up this morning at verse 13. We'll notice uh, that uh, we start with the word um, sent by Darius the king. Remember that an investigation had been made, an inquiry about whether this rebuilding was authorized or not. It was a real threat we saw last week. But uh, in the Lord's wonderful providence, instead of hindering the work, the inquiry actually resulted in taxes paid directly uh, to the Jews on behalf of Persia for the rebuilding of this temple. A remarkable providence uh, that uh, we marked last week. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for you to bless your word once again. So often we've asked you to do this, and so often you've been pleased to do exactly what we ask. Do it again, we pray. Speak to us, impress us, and more than that, mold us by your truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezra 6.13, we'll read through verse 22. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shether, Bozani, and their associates did all, with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Syria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. 
Now, Christian, what do you look forward to? Now, what, what is it, what activity, what, what appointment, what engagement causes you to anticipate, to look ahead, to long for the coming of that time, of that particular date? Maybe it's the ball game. You've got tickets to the ball game this week. You wish. Uh, UK is in Mississippi this week. But uh, you know of what I speak. The day arrives. The anticipation reaches its peak. You have your plans laid out. The route to the stadium. The tickets in your wallet. The money to buy that $3.50 hot dog when you get there. And then you arrive. You take your seat. And it's all that you hoped it would be. Your favorite team is in place. It's a great spot. You can see it all. Then the game starts and you jump to your feet as your team immediately takes the lead. And for the next couple of hours, you engage yourself with all of your heart. And too soon, it comes to an end. And then back home again. Maybe it's not the game. Maybe it's the next episode of your favorite television show. Or the date that your husband has planned for you. Or that golden hour of quiet reading time in the afternoon. Whatever it is, you all know exactly what I mean about finding great joy in some particular treasured activity or another. Well, The scripture teaches us that there's one activity above all the rest that is the Christian's highest joy, our greatest delight and happiness. That event, of course, is the worship of Almighty God. Now, alas, the fact that it is not often our highest joy does reveal something about our hearts. Fact is, we must all admit that if it's not been the case even this morning, we can all recall times when we found much greater thrill and a whole lot of other activities than in coming to the house of the Lord to worship him. And it's under the light of passages like this one that our hearts are exposed and our priorities get rearranged. Just think about what we've just read. What a description of the highest Joy, the greatest happiness of the people of God to meet for worship in the sanctuary of God and then within a short time to celebrate the Passover meal, another act of worship to the Lord. Nothing could have given them greater joy. Nothing thrilled them more than to come together in the presence of the Lord and to worship him. And while it's implied all through the passage, it's explicitly stated at least three times that the people of God worship with joy. That the Lord made their hearts joyful. It's a lesson that we need very much, I think, to learn for ourselves. To find joy in the same thing that our fathers and mothers in the faith found joy in in the past. In the wholehearted engagement of the heart in sincere worship. Now think about how many times in the scripture worship is described this way, as an act of joy and of gladness, directly commanded by Moses in places like Deuteronomy 12 upon 
bringing the sacrifices, tithes and offerings to the Lord, you shall rejoice, the scripture says, you and your households. Or the calls to worship in the Psalms. We heard one this morning, didn't we? Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Or the Bible's constant reminders to bring true worship to God, pleasing and according to his own commandments, being worship that is filled with joy and with gladness. We could put it in the negative as well. The worship of God that he desires that his people give him is never to be, is forbidden to be a mere performance, a sort of going through the motions, a series of acts done dryly and without the heart, without enthusiasm. You know of what I speak, taking the hymnal, or sleeping through the preaching. That sort of worship. He will not have that kind of worship given him in his sanctuary, given him only outwardly, a going through the motions while the heart is distant or devoid of any engagement of our hearts. That's not the kind of worship the Lord wants. And of course, it's not the kind of worship you want to give to the Lord, is it? Now, am I saying that we will never come into this house into worship without some burden or some terrible pain or sorrow pressing on us, weighing heavily upon us, threatening maybe even to draw us away from God? No, of, of course not. We will always come with something on our minds and on our hearts in this veil of tears in which we're living and and we will not always come to this place skipping and whistling our way to the house of God. You know, you know better than that. But when we come into this room and when we bring our hearts to see that we are in the presence of the Almighty God, when we see his glory and the majesty of his splendor through the eyes of our souls, which is faith, when we consider the unspeakable goodness of this God who loves us beyond our really knowing, certainly comprehending fully, understanding, who has saved us from eternal hell and set our feet toward paradise, who prepares and guarantees for us right now a place in paradise, who in the meantime is working all things, all things for our good, who is even ruling over the worst of our trials and the most difficult of our circumstances with the guarantee that the outcome will be our good and his glory, that he has promised to turn our mourning finally into laughter, our grief into bliss to wipe away every tear from our eyes. I say, when he is really, really, truly set before us in worship, then we will not be able to think of the situation or name the circumstance, however heavy, however dark, in which we ought not to have joy overflowing in our hearts when we're before the Lord and worshiping him in his house. 
here is where we may learn some lessons concerning our worship and how to ensure that our worship is genuine worship, given from our hearts, rendered to him with joy from the passage this morning. What a satisfying conclusion, hasn't it been, of this chapter, this first chapter of the restoration of God's people to the promised land, 20 years after the decree of Cyrus concerning the Jews to return to their homeland, Judah and Jerusalem. Though hard times had continued in this day of small things, as Zechariah the prophet described them, through periods of ominous investigations, opposition from outside and within. Finally, the temple is finished. It's been some 70 years since Solomon's temple was destroyed, and now the glory has returned. Oh, no wonder they're joyful. They've been waiting for this for an entire generation, even longer. And now the time has come, and the worship of God has been restored. Which brings me to the first point this morning. How are we going to ensure, my brothers and sisters, that the worship we bring in this house is true worship, worship given in a way that is pleasing and acceptable to our God with all the joy of our hearts? Well, first of all, if that's going to be the case, to give joyful worship, we must anticipate worship. In other words, like the Israelites did of old, we must look forward to coming into the house of God with eager anticipation and expectation. Isn't that exactly what the psalmist did? How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, he said. My soul longs, yea, faints for the courts of the Lord by hearted flesh. Sing for joy to the living God. As he thought about worship, he mused, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Or hear his heart, as the deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O oh God, my soul thirsts. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? He's longing to go to church, to go to worship. I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts of joy and songs of praise. And again, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. That's what we see here when we open the eyes of our hearts by faith. And finally, the time for worship comes, and this is what he has to say. I was glad. I was glad when they said to me, well, you know the rest. Let us go to the house of the Lord. And he was never disappointed. Nor shall we be who come to God's house to his worship anticipating with joy the transaction that takes place here in this sanctuary. 
The Israelites had waited these 20 years since arriving back in the land, 70 years altogether since their fathers and mothers, grandfathers and grandmothers watched in horror as the glorious temple of Solomon was razed by the Babylonian invaders. We need wait only one week. One week of waiting with eager anticipation like that little girl that was converted under the powerful ministry of Jonathan Edwards, powerful because of the Holy Spirit working in and through Jonathan Edwards, who forced her mother each and every day, Mother, how many days till the Sabbath? How many days before we go and worship God and would not be satisfied until her mother literally counted out the days on her fingers? One, two, three, four days, my daughter, till we go to the house of the Lord. That's the first point. Let us anticipate, train ourselves to anticipate worship that way so that when the day comes, each Lord's Day will be met with joy, filled with joy, the fruit of anticipation, and therefore worship-fitting our God. Second, let our joyful worship be solemnly joyful. In other words, let our joy be a solemn joy in worship. Now, I don't mean that our joy should be inhibited. That's not what I'm saying at all. But the joy of worship here of course, is unbridled joy. It's overflowing joy, but it's also a joy that recognizes the shadowy realities of our relationship with God today before the dawning of the eternal day. It's a joy that perceives, doesn't it, how terribly sinful we are. All the more clearly to be seen because in worship we find ourselves in the presence of the, of the holy Thrice holy God and his light flowing on us reveals what we are, the darkness of our hearts. Did you notice that right in the center of this joyful worship is the deepest of penitence, the most heartfelt of sorrow, expression of tearful repentance from sin. In verse 16, they celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of the house a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. What is this? Bringing sin offerings, repenting of their sin, bewailing and worship how they've offended against the Lord, asking him to teach them to hate their sin, to grieve over it until they turn to him in repentance. Where is the joy in that? Many churches have asked the very same question. And failing to understand the nature of true joy, they've done away with it. Just done away with this from the worship service. Any mention whatsoever of sin has got to go. You can go to any number of worship services. Even in conservative churches, 
Bible-believing churches today, and not once, not once in the entire worship service hear that three-letter word, nor certainly be compelled to reckon with your sin by coming to a point in the service in which you confess it and have it forgiven and washed away. It is the telltale sign that we have misunderstood the true nature of joy. Joy is not some constant feeling of bubbliness, some giddiness devoid of seriousness or even solemnity. True joy is, is at its root a disposition of the soul toward God. You see, it's so much deeper than the silliness True joy is the confidence that even as I confess my sin to him, his light will chase away my darkness, that though my sins are like scarlet, he will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. True joy, you see, is based on truth and complete truthfulness. How can we think ourselves truthful with God in worship if we act as if he hasn't the right? As if when we prayed it just a moment ago that he not take his Holy Spirit from us. That's what you said to him. That he doesn't have the right at any time to turn his back on us and cast us away to, from his presence never again to see the light of his face. In true worship we must confess our failure while we cast ourselves upon him and upon his promises, and particularly his promise that when we confess our sin to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of it. What greater joy than that? What unbounded joy that must be to know my sins are forgiven. And confessing our sins like the people of old in the sanctuary of God, having them washed away again. There's joy. Charles Spurgeon put it wonderfully to his congregation this way. He said, as certain fabrics need to be dampened before they will take the glowing colors with which they are to be adorned, so our spirits need the bedoing of repentance before they can receive the radiant coloring of delight. The glad news of the gospel can only be printed on wet paper. Have you ever seen clearer shining than that which follows a shower? Then the sun transforms the raindrops into gems. The flowers look up with fresher smiles and faces glittering from their refreshing bath. And the birds from among the dripping branches sing with notes more rapturous because they have paused for a while. So when the soul has given, has been saturated with the rain of penitence, the clear shining of forgiving love makes the flowers of gladness bloom all around. 
The steps by which we ascend to the palace of delight are usually moist with tears. Grief for sin is the porch of the house beautiful, where the guests are full of the joy of the Lord. John Newton made the same point in verse a bleeding Savior seen by faith, a sense of pardoning love, a hope that triumphs over death, gives joys like those above. Third, note well that joyful worship is worship made complete by sharing that joy with others. Notice in verse 20, who is this who participates in this worship? Well, the priests and the Levites, right? They've purified themselves together. All of them are clean. They slaughter the Passover lamb for all of the returned exiles and for their fellow priests and for themselves, eaten by the people of Israel who returned from the exile. But look at this. And also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Not only are these the original people of God worshiping, the joy is made complete by the participation of those who had recently been outside of the church, but who had now been brought in. How much more will our joy overflow in this sanctuary, my brothers and sisters, when you and I bring our neighbors the good news of the gospel, see them converted, and then bring them to join us in this worship? It's in the sharing of our joy, you see, that our joy is made complete by bringing them in. I tell you, hardly anything will make our worship more joyful than to look down the aisle, and you know of what I speak, and see fresh faces who've been purified and separated from the uncleanness of the world to join us in the worship of God through the washing of the blood of the Lamb, who is Christ. There's joy. And then fourth and finally, we must worship God with joy that is grateful. Verse 22. They kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. Why? For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Christians, we have all the reason in the world to be joyful in the presence of the Lord and to come joyfully into his presence. Not only has he been pleased to turn the hearts of kings toward us, particularly in this land where we worship in freedom and even under the protection of our government. Think about this. Our own government is protecting us now so that we may worship here in safety and in freedom. Do you know, do you understand, do you comprehend how rare this is? 
how rare it is that in a conflict, your government would come here to protect your right to do what you're doing right now. This is incredible. God has turned the hearts of the kings toward us here. But even if it were not true, God has turned the heart of the king of kings toward you. He's turned his own heart toward you, toward his people. He's brought us, even as he has our fathers of old, he has brought us from slavery to freedom, from sorrow to rejoicing, from mourning to festivity, from darkness to light, from servitude to redemption. He has done all of this for you and for me. Let us therefore worship him, my brothers and sisters. Indeed, how can we do any other Sabbath by Sabbath day in this house than with the highest joy, the greatest mirth, the happiness of those who have been saved, whose feet have been set upon the rock in the house of the Lord. Amen.